0: This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review, Sound of Lies by the Jayhawks. I think he mentions getting stoned at least three times on this record. This is an album, like when I listen to it, I sort
1: of go through a lot of different emotions.
0: Uh, to me, this is the best Jayhawks record. You
1: don't ever get numb or bored of it.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Menichi, and joining me once again. My co-host, Mr. Jason Gak. Jay, we are in episode 110 of season three, and it is your turn to make a pick, your second pick of the Second? Second pick Uh-oh. of the 2013 season. And you have selected one that I was not expecting you to pick because you once referred to this as the worst album cover you had ever seen.
1: <laughs> really?
0: Yeah, when we, when we were in college. When we were in college. Because oh,
1: I, I, I don't remember for that.
0: Yeah, uh, true or false? I introduced you to this record.
1: Oh, uh, I'm sure you did. Okay, true.
0: Correct. Uh, yeah, I, I somehow ended up giving you this record, and you were like, "That is the most hideous album cover I've ever seen."
1: Oh, <laughs> huh, it is pretty ugly, but I, I'm surprised I said that. Huh. Yeah.
0: Well, you are a graphic design um, aficionado, nerd, whatever you want to call it. So what what we're talking about, of course, is the Jayhawks. And we're talking about their 1997 album, again, with the 97. We did did a Screaming Trees record last week. It was 96. We took a one-week break off from 97. We're back to 97, this time April 97. And it's the Sound of Lies album, Jay. So... Tell us why did you pick this record?
1: Oh. Um, well, it's one of my favorites, I think, from that from from that era. It's definitely um, of the alt country stuff that um, you exposed me to. It's the one that I, I like the most of of all of those bands. Um, and, you know, just listening to it, you know, over the last couple years, it's I felt like it, you know, when I've heard a song here and there that it still has stood up. Really well over time. So I thought it'd be good to revisit, see what you thought about it, um, see, get a little bit more perspective on their overall catalog and how this might fit in, because I'm not as familiar with the rest of the catalog as maybe you are or our mm-hmm. listeners are. So I thought it'd be a good one. And it's one you never, when you, when you, when people talk about this band, I think it's the album that's least talked about, right?
0: Yeah, I would forgotten. agree with that. Yeah, and there's some reasons for that, which we'll get into. Uh, How about right now with the history of the band?
1: History of the band.
0: So the Jayhawks formed in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1985 by Mark Olson on guitar and vocals, Gary Loris on guitar and vocals also, Mark Perlman on bass, and Norm Rogers on drums. They recorded their first album, which was self-titled, For Bunkhouse Records in 1986, it was re-released in 2010 by Lost Highway Records. Uh, Norm Rogers was replaced on drums by Thad Spencer. Their second album, Blue Earth, was released by Twin Tone Records in 1989. And then Thad Spencer was replaced by Ken Callahan on drums. It was uh, shortly after there that Rick Rubin protege, guess who, Jay? George Draculius, second episode in a row, George Draculius has showed up. He signed the band to Deaf American in 1991. They recorded with Draculius. Their third album, Hollywood Town Hall, released in 1992 on Deaf American. Shortly after, they added Karen Groteberg on keys and backing vocals. Their fourth album, Tomorrow the Green Grass, was released by American Recordings in February of 1995 with session drummer Don Heffington on that particular album. So they've been through a lot of drummers after just four records. Basically a different drummer every record. In the end, By the end of 95, a shockwave was sent through the Jayhawks fan base as Mark Olson quit the band. Who? He formed a... What? Who quit the band? Mark Olson. Co-songwriter, co-singer.
1: Son of a bitch.
0: Quit the band and he formed the original Harmony Ridge Creek Dippers with his then girlfriend and now wife Victoria Williams, who had, uh, she, had a, she had a hit single in the '90s, and then one of her songs was covered by Pearl Jam uh, for like a B-side, which was "Crazy Mary." Uh, and then Craig Johnson, who was formerly of in the band Run Westy Run, and then he was in the band Golden Smog, which was a I guess you'd say a Minnesota supergroup with um, Gary Loris, Dan Murphy of Soul Asylum and non-Minnesotan Jeff Tweedy of a band called Wilco. Uh, Craig Johnson f- joined uh, on guitar to replace Mark Olson, and then Tim O'Regan or O'Regan, uh, took over on drums. They released their fifth album, which we're reviewing, Sound of Lies, on American Recordings in April of 97, and Jesse Green, who had been in the Geraldine Fibbers, contributed the strings on the record. Their sixth album, Smile, was released by American in May of 2000. Bob Ezrin produced the record. At that point, Groteberg and Johnson left the band. They were replaced singularly by Stephen McCarthy on guitar and various instruments. Their seventh album, Rainy Day Music, was released by American in April of 2003. In the Winter of 2005, spring of 2006, Gary Loris and Mark Olson reunited for a tour called From the Jayhawks and an evening with Mark Olson and Gary Loris together again. Uh, Then they released a, I guess you'd say a duo, a dual solo album. It was just Mark Olson and Gary Loris uh, recording an acoustic album together called Ready for the Flood. In July of two thousand nine, Sony Legacy and American Recordings released music from the North Country, the Jayhawks anthology, and then officially, uh, the Jayhawks reunited with Olson and uh, Karen Groteberg returned to the band to release Mockingbird Time in September of two thousand eleven, and that is the history of the Jayhawks. So they've they've had some changes in the lineups. That's to be. Uh, Noted. It's a rather really important note. Because uh, you mentioned about me and... Uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. wait we got to do Facebook feedback. I forgot. Zach Moore chimed in. Zach Moore, friend of the show, multiple contributor uh, in terms of comments and, and suggestions. He said, I only recently bought this album and I'm still getting into it. The production is very full. It could use a little editing. And the more pop rock sound on this album isn't as good as the alt-country flavoring heard on a... Heard on Hollywood Town Hall and Tomorrow the Green Grass, but it's still thoroughly enjoyable. Standout tracks upon early listings are The Man Who Loved Life, Big Star, and Dying on the Vine. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on Golden Smog as well. Well, we will be getting to Golden Smog at some point because I have lots of Golden Smog stories uh, that uh, i like to share. But we're going to cover the Jayhawks in this particular record. So Jay, uh, you mentioned about my thoughts. Since I, you suggest this record, that means I get to go first, which means I get to share my thoughts right now. So I was a Jayhawks fan starting with Tomorrow the Green Grass. That's when I got into them, uh, which was released in 95, winter of 95. It was around the time that I discovered Wilco and Sunvolt and that whole alt-country thing that was going on. And I went back in time, not back in time, but I went back into the Uncle Tupelo catalog at that point they had already broken up. So usually with a band, my favorite album is the one I discover the band on. So like, for example, I discovered Hump on their second record, You'd Prefer an Astronaut. So that's always been my favorite record. With the Afghan Wigs, one of my favorite bands, I discovered that band with Black Love, not Gentlemen. So Black Love's always kind of been my, my favorite record. However, with the Jayhawks, Smiley Green Grass is not my favorite record. It's in fact this record. Hmm. Um, this was a shock to the system when it came out. You know, I was I was smack dab in the middle of loving uh, Wilco's Being There, which had just come out, which is a you know a double album of a much more expanded sound from their first album, A.M., a much more diverse sound from what Tweety did with Uncle Tupelo, and it was kind of a you know uh and, and, and almost an anthology of American music. That record covers not just American music, but of, of I guess you would say even classic rock. There's there are Beatles songs, there are Beatles sounding songs, Stone sounding songs. It sounds like there's songs that sound like Johnny Cash and and the Birds, and it's very diverse in terms of its influences, and it's a really interesting record. And I kind of feel like. Gary Loris, after Mark Olson left the band, the guy who was his partner for you know over 10 years in songwriting, and they had these great harmonies together, he probably, because he was friends with Jeff Tweedy, was as blown away as everybody else. It was like, I can't just make the same country rock, alternative country album I've been making. I got to step it up. And the influences that are involved in this record, from the psychedelic sounds of um, Think About It, which has this great like chugging guitar that sounds like it's half underwater, um, to the I don't even know what to describe it. There are these songs like "Poor Little Fish" that have like roto vibe guitar with weird feedback feedback and guitar going on, like mixed into the, the into the um, uh, in the peripheral. They're not like directly in front of you, but they're kind of mixed to the sides. It's a really interesting and diverse record. It recalls. Not the Beatles' White Album, because that's the easy one to like, you know, when you want to talk about when a band does something weird, you go, well, it's like their White Album. It's mm-hmm. not quite that bizarre. No. But no, it, no. it's but it's definitely influenced by the more adventurous 60s pop that the Beatles were doing. Birds were attempting with some of their more experimental – the Birds got terribly experimental, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and – Yet, it has some amazing choruses. No matter where the song starts, Gary Loris is going to take you to a place where the chorus is huge, and it helps that Karen Grotberg is there to double him and do harmonies because she sounds like the the missing piece to so many of these songs. That if they if she wasn't there. I'm thinking of like um, 16 Down, mm-hmm. um, which has – it's it's not my favorite song on the record, but they get to that chorus and there's a counter melody that, that goes along with each line of the chorus uh, where Gary Loris is doubling himself and then Karen Goldberg is also singing it and she's singing – they're singing together uh, Madeline Breathe opposite of his line mm-hmm. and it's just – it's so big and so melodic.
1: This team down, living in the hollow.
0: there's so many points in this record where you get to that chorus like on Trouble uh, when you get to the um, the pre-chorus there are these ahs that go on with these descending chords which sound mm-hmm. very Beatlesque. esque it's I mean it's almost like I want you she's so heavy kind of thing going on mm-hmm. in that part of the part of the song um, it's really it's every time I listen to this record and I haven't listened to it in a long time so I'm glad you picked it out There's so many little things that you pick up on because it's produced as well as it is written where Mm -hmm. the tones are cool. You know, they get really dirty and and nasty in some of the guitar parts. And the thing I always liked about Gary Loris, and I'll mention one thing with Golden Smog. I saw him play with Golden Smog, and he was kind of known for always playing an SG and always playing a fuzz face pedal, which is this round red pedal. It has just one button, you hit it, and you get a nice fuzzy guitar tone. And you can hear that in a lot of the guitar work that he does, which is odd because the Jayhawks have thought of, of being a, you know kind of a folky alternative country band. But when he lets a solo go, he kicks on that fuzz face, and you hear it like in, in like and I mentioned the song like Trouble. He does that, you know, melodic solo that matches the vocal line. But it sounds cool. Like it sound it cuts through this the, the song so you could hear it, and uh, there's really not a hiccup on this record. Uh, Tim O'Regan gets one track, track 11, Bottomless Cup, and it's a little bit of a tarp departure because it sounds odd to hear him sing, but when you start digging into the lyrics of the album, thematically, it's it works with the record, and a lot of this record is angry, and it is about being betrayed which is <laughs> you could probably pick up on the fact that Gary Loris was pretty pissed off that Mark Le- Mark Olson left the band um, because there are all sorts of references to being let down by someone and being and being you know and, and basically we're gonna we're, we've been we've been stabbed in the back and we've been let down so now we're gonna get stoned because that's the only thing we can do I think he mentions yeah. getting stoned at least three times on this record <laughs> Which is, which is funny, but... Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to me, this is the best Jayhawks record. And in retrospect, Tomorrow the Green Grass is almost like a holding pattern after Hollywood Town Hall. Hollywood Town Hall is a great album. And if you haven't listened to it, the harmonies on there alone are worth listening to because they have such a unique way of singing harmonies together that I you don't really hear anybody doing that in the 90s or since then. But, Tomorrow the Green Grass has the big single, which is Blue. So that record gets mentioned a lot, because Blue is a fantastic single. Um, But Mm -hmm. overall, the record is just a kind of a continuation, almost like part one and part two. And this is clearly the sound of a band taking chances and succeeding 99% of the time. So, um, yeah, yeah, it, I, I love it's a, this record.
1: It's a record, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a start to finish journey, um, from track one to twelve, that you know I think is best enjoyed together. And I don't know, have we said that a lot about the, many of the records we we've re, we've reviewed over the last couple of years and uh, both liked. I mean.
0: I'm trying the to think frames records
1: together as well as a record as this does. I mean, this should I should own this on vinyl and I should listen to it, you know, in sequence oh, yeah from start to finish. And this is Carter out of basically.
0: print. Like they stopped making this record. All the all the other records have been reissued and stuff, and you can't like they haven't paid attention to this record at all. Which is a shame.
1: Yeah, because it puts um it takes what you know, those the harmonies and some of those sensibilities from the early records, and it kind of creates a new structure, um, which is mostly you know melancholy and and downright depressed. But it it sprinkles in those those harmonies and sort of um I guess all country sort of sensibilities on melody and stuff. And when they do that, all of a sudden it like it becomes the light on an otherwise dark record, mm-hmm. um, particularly like the, those harmony parts that you're talking about where, you know, it'll be in a verse and they'll just hit, you know, they'll hit a line and they'll sort of build up a, a, a counter melody that later on plays out later, you know, in the in the chorus. And, you know, it, whenever that happens, it's like, you know, emotional. Th- this is an album, like when I listen to it, I sort of go through a lot of different emotions, you know, and I can't say that about a lot of records. You know what I mean? And it sort of lulls you into this like melancholy, sort of almost depression for mom- for, for for say an intro or a first part of a verse. And when those harmonies come in, all of a sudden it's like a light goes on, and you start to like feel like different. It's a, it, I think that's why I love this record. Is it kind of just it plays with your emotions so much as you listen to it and just how these songs are crafted in the and the journeys they go on. So a song like, um, like Trouble, you know, it's kind of up and down and, you know, tosses you around a little bit and gets quiet and then it gets a little bit louder. And, you know, the songwriting's f- not that it's challenging, but it's pushes things a little bit. And it's, I think, outside of some common convention, I think it's a little bit more sophisticated in terms of how they're constructing these songs. Um, it's not always just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus kind of stuff. And the hooks are a little bit, um, they sneak up on you. You know, the, mm-hmm. the parts of the songs and stuff that are memorable and hooky. They're not always what you would think they would be. It's not always the chorus. It might be a pre-chorus or something in the verse that happens. There's a little bit of truth in every lie You were so above us. It was just the blind leading the blind Why I think I respond to it is it's, it's uh, I think of all the records we've reviewed, um, it's probably the one that just it's an emotional thing and it just it has a lot to do with the way that it's crafted. Um, and and I, I think it can conveys the state he was in, right? I mean, very well. I think one of the uh, unsung heroes of this record might be the bass player. I don't know if you uh paid much attention, but the bass playing on this record is. is pretty brilliant uh it it sets up a lot of the melodies on the record um it it uh takes parts that would otherwise be sort of just un you know sort of un interesting transitional parts and, and and makes them more interesting and then a song like dying on the vine which is one of my favorites uh it becomes you know the the better rock of the whole song and, and really the whole first verse is based on it Um, and it does this really cool thing where it creates this tension, um, that the whole rest of the song kind of sits on top of. They go to this um, double time part for the choruses, and just a total contrast to the verse. Um, so I, I, th- I think they got a, a lot of good players. You know, the drummer's really good. All the keyboard and, and, and string stuff is really good, and and the, and the bass player on this record is is phenomenal.
0: And it's you can hear in the in the bass playing. The diversity of it between what Perlman does in, like you mentioned "Dying on the Vine," he's doing that cool. I don't even know how to describe that bass line, but it's just he's carrying the song, and mm-hmm. then you listen to, uh, think about it, and you when you get to the verses in that song, he's playing, he's doing all this melody with the boat with the bass, and playing all these runs and doing all these things where in the in the intro and in the choruses. You got those chugging guitars that are carrying the song and it's, it shows off his, he can play, I guess, a little bit more of a, of a, of a lead part, which is not normal for a bass player in an alternative rock or alternative country band. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, usually the bass is just relegated to playing runs here and there, you know, up and down the, in in whatever scale, whatever key they happen to be in. Yeah, he's, t- this, like you said, the players really come out. And I love, there's so many cool dynamics in Dying on the Vine. It starts out with that bass line and the drums, which are not playing a simple, just, you know, four on the floor beat. They're, he's kind of adding a little bit of propulsiveness to the, and then they have, when the guitar comes in and the chorus, it's really nasty. And then the mm-hmm. one part when the violin comes in, adds that drama to the song just so many cool elements and
1: it has my favorite guitar solo on the record too and it's it's not anything like it's there's no finger magic but it's just this really cool use of tension and almost like what he doesn't play and just it's that part it's like he it kind of like pulls on the note you know it's kind of like this stutter
0: mm-hmm.
1: kind of like guitar solo lead thing and it's just it's kind of unexpected and it has tons of personality and uh, it's just one, another one of those elements where it's, it just fits it perfectly. I don't There's know. Very- that, who, who, who would be playing that? Who, who does guitar solos?
0: That's Gary Loris. Okay. Unless, unless, um, you know, Craig Johnson is on this record, but I don't know how much he played uh, lead on this record. I think that was primarily Gary Loris Cause I remember, from seeing him live he was the guy that would take the solos and play like the dirty stuff so the
1: uh you know 16 down is a great example of you know you listen to the bass and the guitar it sets up the vocal melody that's going to happen and so as Mm -hmm. i'm listening to that i'm like oh that's so nice that's so smart but then i go back and try to deconstruct it and start thinking about well who what came first like how did they write this (laughs) you know like, did they write a bass line first and then they based a the vocal on it? Or, you know, there's no, like, strumming guitar under it, so it's hard to kind of get a feel if this was written on guitar and then the bass line sort of mimicked a vocal melody and then they took the guitar out. But there's just this, you know, there's just everything's thought about and it's supporting each other. And, um, you know, they take simple melodies and the way they combine them together, you know, and they make something special out of it.
0: I need to ask you about one particular song, which is track four, It's Up To You. Because the, to me, that is the most traditional Jayhawk song. You know, princess,
1: you're really the Can't understand why the world wasn't handed to you You know Justify the blame 16 hours and a champagne basket Pay the bill with your boyfriend's plastic What a little fool Takes one To get to two
0: Up tempo. It's kind of sunny. It doesn't have any, I would guess you'd say, dissonance, where some of the other songs do. Whether whether it's with the weird effects or or heavier guitars or um, angry lyrics, it's. I can hear Mark Olson singing the harmonies that Karen Groperg is singing in that song. And I'm curious as your opinion because that to me is the link to previous two jayhawks albums
1: well i think in the context of this record that that's what i'm saying like that's um i really appreciate that song because the rest of the record doesn't go this far so when they kind of indulge themselves a little bit and head in that a little bit brighter you know more sunny alt-country flavor that you know we did in the previous records now it's 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 a it's a point of variety it's it's nice it's kind of like a it's just like I said. This is a record, so this is just one moment in time. That's kind of nice, sandwiched between two others that are a little bit different. Um, I love, I love the female um, harmony on it. I, I can't imagine it being done any other way. I think it makes the chorus. It creates this, I don't know, more interesting dynamic where the voices fit together perfectly in terms of harmony, but I can still recognize them as separate voices, which is is nice. And, you know, I think it's restrained. That's, that's what I love about the harmonies on this record. And that and that song's a good <laughs> example of it as well, is that I love that they're, you know, they're all over it, but they're restrained. They're not, I don't know, if I think sing a song like Blue, it's like they're kind of from start to finish on that song. And you, I think you get a little numb to it after a while. And this is mm-hmm. like, you don't ever get numb or bored of it because they take it away long enough that you kind of want it again and then they bring it back in the right spots. So, uh, yeah, I thought, I mean, I think it's an, you know, it's a good album track and, uh, the contrast with the rest of the record is, is kind of nice. You know, the, the, the light to the dark and the shift back to the all country for a little bit.
0: I do want to mention if you want to buy the version or the, the vinyl version of this record, apparently it is available, but on Amazon it's mm-hmm. over a hundred dollars. Oh my god! I'm guessing these were pressed. These were probably pressed at the time when they were released the album, and that's all that's out there. Wow!
1: So So these are it's an original pressing.
0: Yeah, looks like you can get them used for uh, around sixty bucks. But yeah, they range from anywhere from sixty to one hundred and forty five dollars used.
1: I think some of the uh, I want to say some of that because this was on American, right? Yes. Yeah, I think some of that stuff's being re-released by other people, so hopefully, this this album gets re-released.
0: I hope so. It definitely deserves uh, a vinyl release. In in terms of uh, hearing everything, sonically, this is absolutely a type of album that should be on vinyl. Um. I mentioned it has the lyrics. Four and a half stars on Amazon. Yeah, I mentioned the lyrics. I want to pick out a few that I I think that are really indicative of the overall tone of this record. Uh, trouble is, I think if you and actually trouble is the um, third track of the song. I think if you listen to the first three songs on this record, you're going to get everything that this record is about in terms of the you know piano. Intro of The Man Who Loved Life, which kind of that song sort of builds and changes. And think about it, it's got that psychedelic guitar going on. And I can't imagine what that sounded like live that they actually pulled that off that heavy. That
1: heavy guitar with him doing the falsetto over top, which is always mm -hmm. a nice, you know, combination.
0: And then Trouble is definitely a much more uh, uh, melodic and, 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 a little bit, leans more, a little bit more to the traditional um, Jayhawk sound. But in the lyrics, they go, uh, there's a a couple lines that I wanted to point out. Uh, Let's see. In that one line, he says, we were stranded on the vine, destitute and shaken, looking for a sign, left hung out to dry, our backs against the wall, stoned out of our minds. I'm guessing that left hung out to dry are back against the wall. That's I think that's in reference to Mark Olson just walking out on the band while they were in mid-career, <laughs> and um, their response was to get stoned out of their minds, which I guess I understand. When you're in the middle of a successful music career, you know, scraping by. They weren't by any means, you know, rich, and I think that the song "Big Star" is a good indication of that because that song is pretty much about. Uh, not being a big star <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: when you're supposed to be, like you know, you're touring the country and playing shows, and you're you're broken, busted. And it's yeah. the only that that song is worth pointing out because not only is it the only time on the record that they play sort of an up-tempo rock song, it's really the only time in their career they get a little bit up-tempo on Smile, which is definitely an attempt at a pop record um, with some, I guess you'd say, electronic elements, which is weird to say, but they do do some like digital drums and stuff like that on that record, and some drum beats. But there's nothing on Hollywood Town Hall or, or Tomorrow with the Green Grass that approaches the volume and, and tempo that Big Star is. So I wonder how long, like, Gary Loris had that sitting in the, uh, you know, in the songwriting tank. Because some of his stuff on, he was a songwriting contributor for Golden Smog and some of his stuff for that band is definitely more Mm up-tempo. So I'm wondering if, you know, he had these songs, and he was like, well, Mark's gone, I guess I can do what I want now, and let's do the fast rocker, and let's do the weird, (laughs) sludgy, psychedelic song, and...
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, the, this material is definitely, uh, it's more introspective, and I don't know that you could do it if it was a partnership. I don't think a lot of these songs could be done if it was a partnership. You know, that Spotlight needs to, there's moments on a lot of these songs, but the Spotlight needs to s- really be fixated on one person, and even lyrically, you know, it's about one person in there, and it's their, mo- you know, it, 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 some of these verses and stuff, it, you know, he's sort of isolated, and um, the, the the other people in the band are kind of playing parts around him, you know. And I, I feel like, on the earlier material, it's a it's more of a partnership. So that, that can't ever really happen as much, you know. It's, it's always mm-hmm. two two voices and two points of view, you know, two things coming together, which is which is great sometimes too. But I think there's a contrast here that happens within these songs that could only happen because of you know the events. Oh. Uh, up to this point and i think it just captures it captures that perfectly and you know big stars it's kind of a you know it almost has like a like a sarcasm to it which is great you know And you're right it's like it's probably the hookiest song on the damn album you know it should have been a single it's, if it wasn't it
0: it was the single and they did make a video for it. it yeah yeah
1: i love the verses i mean even though the the chorus is is hooky i, I love the verses on that on that song Sort of have a, a little bit of a, a little darker tinge to them, and, and it switches over to the super poppy chorus. And the drums, the drums, and, and are, are great on that song as well. Like it, they're, they're, they have energy. Um, they're interesting. They're kind of almost like a Charlie Watts kind of Rolling Stones feel to them, but they're not really complicated or get in the way.
0: I think the thing that I like about that song. I think it's both a commentary on, you know, where they were and and sort of their expectations as far as not their expectations, but maybe the uh, you know false expectations that were applied to them. But I think it's also a sly reference to the band Big Star mm-hmm. in that Big Star never really accomplished what a lot of people thought they were a critics' band. And in a lot of ways, the Jayhawks are a critics band. Right. So when he says, I'm going to be a big star someday, I think he's really just saying, I'm going to, you know, end up being what the what the big star ended up being, which is an influence to a lot of, you know, musicians, but not necessarily a successful artist in the, mm-hmm. I'm going to sell a million records. And, you know, if he's yeah. okay with that, I I would be okay with that, but I don't and know. you me, okay that,
1: with that for a lyric, that's clever as hell. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's just.
0: Well, it works in two different ways.
1: Of, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know what makes this album so good.
0: Yeah, I don't think we need to get into where the album better EP decent single because I think we both agree that as an album, start to finish, this is a pretty, you know, remarkable, consistent, and exciting album. So here's my question. Who is this for today?
1: Oh, you know, I kept thinking of like all these oh my lane down a little bit. (laughs) All these uh uh vet brothers and sort of this like hipster like you know twenty year old kids from came down from the mountain with their acoustic guitars and banjos like trying to do this like bulky,
0: rootsy, you know. You're talking, like, Mumford & Son and the Lumineers? Yeah, yeah,
1: all that shit. And I just, I listen to this, I'm like, oh, my God, these guys are so much more talented. And this stuff is, like, it's it's coming from the same place, but it's so much just better in every respect and that stuff. And, I mean, I like some of that stuff, but if you contrast the two together, it's like, wow, I get, you know, I get all that plus more. So, I, I don't know. I think all the people that are into that stuff, I think the people in are into uh, Ryan Adams, you know, who's another person It's like, I, I don't know. Whenever I listen to Ryan Adams, I want him to sound like this record, and he doesn't. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like I said, I think there's a whole revival of, of new bands that are sort of in this vein, but this is, I don't know, so much better. And I think it's, you know, now when I listen to him, I'm oh like, God, this is like a classic, classic rock. And in, in, in regards of classic like it's never going to get old like it reminds me of the band or you know something like that where it's just always going to sound fresh and
0: um relevant I think even if you're in a band into a band like the national I think there sure. are elements of of that band that you would find interesting you know as I think the obvious ones obviously if you're in a Wilco or sunvolt you know those sorts of things I think it's easy to find the connection. But, you know, the Nationals, and, and then there's some lesser-known bands, like or artists like Tim Easton and... um, uh, Are the Damwells still together? They were sort of kicking around for a while in the 2000s. Yeah. Um,
1: Band of Horses. Is...
0: Band of Horses is a good one. The F- Fleet Foxes. You know, those, those bands that are doing takes on folk and alternative country you know if if yeah if you're a 20 year old hipster and you're listening to the Fleet Foxes this this is you need to go back and check this out because this a lot of this is pretty mind blowing yeah not just because they when you turn up the volume and Gary Loris kicks on his fuzz face it melts your melts your face <laughs> off but
1: well and the reason that's so effective is because it, it sort of pulls in the other direction so far too you know yeah I mean? it can be so like pretty that when he does when they do switch over which you know happens in a lot of these songs you know it's some of these are a roller coaster ride where they start one way and they take a turn or another and then they come back again and it's all seamlessly done uh the reason why it sort of feels like it blows your face off is because you know 10 seconds before that he was being like you know super sincere and quiet or you know, doing something a pretty harmony, and all of a sudden, you know, there there's this other Swiss to it,
0: which makes the dynamics not just in terms of songwriting, but in terms of playing and production, even more impressive, because you see, they're able to do that seamlessly without making it jarring. But it's but it's definitely fits in there. I guess you you kind of ex- you know, nothing is expected on this record, but it makes sense when you hear it. You're like. Yeah, that that blazing fuzzed out guitar in this folky kind of song shouldn't work, but man, it makes sense when it does. Because they do yeah, such a good job cool of intertwining about it. Is that
1: it is uh adventurous, but it's not I wouldn't say it's challenging. You know, it doesn't uh I feel like you get it the first listen and the more you listen to it you just kind of makes me have liked it more and more. But I never felt like, you know, it was or parts of the song where you're like, oh that was weird. I don't know if I like that or not. Let me listen to it again. You know, it, it doesn't go that far. So it all is very comfortable and all fits together, but still it's like pushing the boundaries of of um you know what this band can do, what what they're supposed to be like and what the genre is supposed to be like.
0: So in terms of uh here's my last question. In terms of uh best album with a bad album cover, is this the winner?
1: <laughs> you know what, in contrast, looking at the album cover, uh Album covers now are just so bad that this one doesn't seem as bad as it, it did at the time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Even well, looking at their album covers, like it's probably in the middle. Like they have other album covers that are probably worse than that one is now.
0: So, yeah, the the worst one probably is Smile, actually. I think that yeah, album covers. That's awful, yeah. So all right, well, uh if you like what you heard on this particular episode Leave us some feedback. If you'd like us to review the Golden Smog record, visit our request to review page and request that we review it, and we will review the Golden Smog record. That's how we make that happen. Yeah, that's it. We have given our effusive praise to the Jayhawk Sound of of Lies. We broke uh, our
1: rule and had a love fest.
0: Yeah, we had a love fest. We had one last year, too, with uh, the Frames uh, Fitzcarraldo. And then we got this one out of the way early this year. So and we did the first go season back. with... Uh,
1: we can go back to arguing.
0: Yeah, we can go back. We can return to the to the big-ass truck-style uh, episodes where Jay is completely wrong. And uh, on that note, we're going to get out of here. So uh, for Jay, I'm Tim, your Dig Me Out co-hosts, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.